listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. You might have been a bit surprised to arrive this evening to discover the church still decorated with the greenery and the wreaths and the Christmas tree. I mean, really, shouldn't all of this have been taken down when we reached the end of the 12 days of Christmas? There is, though, a tradition of leaving the church decorated through to this day, the feast of the baptism of the Lord, because this is, in some real sense, also a birth story. In fact, In the Gospel according to Mark, it's the only birth story that's told. Think about it. Luke gives us the story of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, which Matthew then parallels with his story of the visit of the Magi. Luke also offers the story of the presentation of Jesus at the temple 40 days after his birth as well as that lone biblical story of Jesus in childhood. You know the one. Mary and Joseph have taken him to Jerusalem on their annual pilgrimage, and he worries them half to death by disappearing, only to be found in the temple engaged in deep conversation with the teachers at the age of 12. And then just like that, Luke transitions to the proclamation of John the Baptist and then to the baptism of Jesus himself. So there's birth story, the long silence, a glimpse of Jesus at the age of 12, and a longer silence, and then the appearance of Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River at the age of about 30. And now... Now the story moves into full gear. Something new has begun. Something has been birthed on the banks of that desert river. It's actually the third time in just over a month that the lectionary brings the figure of John the Baptist into view. We had a first glimpse of him back on the second Sunday in Advent. And then a more thoroughgoing introduction to his message on the third Sunday of Advent. Tonight, in the imagery of the winnowing fork and chaff being burned in unquenchable fire, we actually get a repeat of some of those verses from Advent 3. I baptize you with water, John had said, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, who will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John's baptism was a marker of repentance, a turning, and a committed new beginning in preparation for the coming of the Messiah and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. There's an urgency and an intensity to John's proclamation. It's get your life in order now. Get your life in order before the anointed one arrives. You better. John is clearly drawing on existing Jewish purification rituals of immersion in water. 
among other things, that is required of Gentiles converting to Judaism. There is a kind of a baptism. John's probably also drawing on the practices of the rather austere Jewish sect that located itself at Qumran, far from Jerusalem. But John has made this baptism a very public act. And he's located it outside of the confines of synagogue or of temple. It's in the wilderness. Water imagery courses all the way through the Hebrew scriptures. And while it's often a positive image of life and sustenance, think of the line from the 23rd Psalm, he leads me beside still waters. I mean, that's a kind of a, that's a lovely image. But water can also mark danger, threat, even chaos. Biblically, that's just true. And we all know it, of course, from our own experiences of water. You can't live without it for more than just a few days. Plants wither and die without water. Nothing, nothing feels better on a really hot summer day than stepping into a cool lake and feeling your body kind of come back to life. It's sustaining, it's life-giving. Yet in this part of the world, we also know the power of water. In those spring floods, when those muddy, slow-moving rivers suddenly break their banks and are spread everywhere. And just think of the devastation of a tsunami. The very same water that gives life can become this force that destroys. Now, more personally, I have to confess that if I have anything resembling a phobia, it's a fear of drowning. I don't like actually going underneath the water much, not my whole head. I don't. As soon as I go under, I'm kind of like, mm, get me out, I can't breathe under here. My wife, Catherine, can happily dive and snorkel by the hour. And she positively lit up like a Christmas tree when she had the chance to learn how to scuba dive. I sat on the boat. <laughs> and I watched as she and the others and the instructor disappeared underneath the surface of the water and stayed there for 45 minutes. My heart was in my mouth at the very thought of doing that. And I was enormously relieved when they began to sort of pop up again. So, given all of that, I hear these words from today's reading from Isaiah in a very particular way. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. The prophet is saying that even the very thing that gets my heart pounding, brings it right into my mouth, is not to be feared, for God is with us. In Isaiah, these are words that God speaks through the prophet to a displaced and exiled people, a people who had experienced themselves as having been 
overwhelmed and swept away, swept into captivity in Babylon. But now, thus says the Lord, but now, the one who created you, O Jacob, the one who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I've called you by name. You are mine. So trust me. Come down into the river and be baptized, John had proclaimed. Repent. Do a 180-degree turn in your life and your life practices and immerse your body in this water. When you break the surface again, know that something has died and something new has been born. In Matthew's account, Matthew's version of this story, John is actually entirely unclear as to why Jesus has come to him asking to be baptized. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? If you are who I think you are, then you have nothing to turn from, nothing to repent of, nothing to let go of or let die. Yet Jesus is insistent that John baptize him, and so John does. And when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. That's the moment that you realize that we're dealing with a kind of a birth story. You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, while Luke has already related all of those infancy stories, all of the stories that kind of lead up to the actual birth in Bethlehem, and let the reader know that Jesus is indeed the beloved Son, it's at this moment that it all goes public, so to speak, and now things are set into motion. Well, the very next thing that happens after the baptism, after hearing the voice of God speaking through the Spirit, the next thing that happens after things are set in motion is that that Spirit of God, signified by a descending dove, will lead Jesus deeper into the desert. Not back to the city right away, but deeper into the desert for a 40-day sojourn of fasting and of prayer. Forty days which culminate with him having to face down the deepest of temptations, namely to seize power and control in ways contrary to his deep calling. We'll hear that story told in just a month or so when the season of Lent begins. So for now, just let me say this. Sometimes the call to follow the guidance of the Spirit of God can take us into rough, challenging, soul-searching terrain. 
And yet still we must not lose sight of those critical words from the prophet Isaiah. I have called you by name, and you are mine. So trust me. In deep waters or in arid desert, trust me, I will be with you. Amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.